0: We want to go back tonight in the Bible to the book of Matthew. We'll start with the 17th chapter. We'll begin at the 14th verse. We want to walk along the shores of Galilee for a little while with Jesus. We want to see what he did while he was here to help us to understand That he did all these things out of compassion and he had them written down for our learning and our help. He knew that the world was going to last as long as it has. He knew that there would be generations coming uh, long after he had left the earth. He knew that one day Gutenberg would invent a printing press and the first book that was printed on it was the Bible. He knew that uh, men would run to and fro and knowledge would increase and that uh, technology would come down to us today uh, to the fact that uh, there are several huge transmitters around the world uh, broadcasting the gospel to two-thirds of the world population. He knew all of this. But while he was here, the history of his walk on the earth We read of some very amazing incidences in his life. Let's start with verse 14 in chapter 17 of Matthew, and it says, And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying. Now, certain is in italics. It wasn't in the original text. But if the Bible speaks about a certain man, it generally means about... Uh, a true story not a parable not a uh, illustration but a true story this actually was a certain man that lived he lived at that time and he came to Jesus and this is how he addressed him Lord you know I've noticed that throughout the uh, New Testament the stories that were recorded about people who came to Jesus for what this man came for and what others came for, for themselves or for others. In almost every incident, he, they acknowledged him as Lord. James said that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He need not think that he shall receive anything of God. Now, this man, as well as others who came to Jesus while he was here on earth for those three and a half years, was certain that he could do the thing that they ask of him. They did not uh, question or doubt his ability or his will in the matter, but came to him humbly. And and, uh, I understand in their culture... When someone was humbling themselves before someone else, uh, they would fall down before them and touch their knees, which was some kind of something to do with their culture in regards to them humbling themselves. There are some people who are so proud that they, within their spirits, when they are confronted with the gospel... Say, in effect, without perhaps saying the words out loud, if I have to humble myself and make a fool that they may think they are doing it, making a fool of myself in front of other people and humble myself and and, uh, come down here, for example, uh, to an altar of prayer and and humble myself before God, I am never going to do it. They'll never get me down there. I've heard people talk like that. You know something? If they ever get saved, this is where they're going to have to come. He said, Lord, have mercy on my son. I don't believe the world really realizes tonight how much they are in need of mercy. The world does not realize in what danger they are in, in a spiritual sense. For there are everlasting consequences to every human being that lives on the face of the earth. Most people are not aware that they have a soul that's going to live on forever. And that their journey and probation down here is all being recorded by God in heaven. And that every deed done in the body will come up before us when we are all ushered up into the great judgment seat. There are millions and perhaps billions of people that have lived and died. But according to the Bible, they will be resurrected and reunited with their spirit. And they will all, all of us together, will stand before the great tribunal of God and give an account of the things that we have done in this life. Every last person doesn't make any difference whether they had a religious persuasion or they were atheistic or they're agnostic or they cared little or nothing for God or the Bible. That is of little consequence because, according to God's eternal and true word, He is going to usher every human being up before Him. And so He said, "Mercy." Have mercy on my son. He didn't come for himself. He came for his son. And what father, if he had a son like this, would not feel the same way? He said he was a lunatic. Comes from the idea of the moon. Uh, lunar. Having to do with the heavens and uh, becoming uh, mad over the sun or, or over the moon uh, how is it uh, uh, moonstruck is the word that i was trying to figure out uh, a person that is crazy or deranged said that he was a lunatic and sore vexed or tormented for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. He was crazy. They had a son who was crazy. I remember one time we dealt with a man that way, years and years ago. I, he was definitely crazy. I happened to be in the room when they were dealing with him. And I was praying every moment of the time because I was just a young Christian. I don't even know why I was in the room. But these older saints were dealing with this man and and he was shouting and screaming and threatening and carrying on. He didn't touch anybody. He didn't do any of the things that he said he would do, but he was really uh, flipped out. And. By and by, it all quieted down. Nothing really ever came of it, but I really got an experience that day. I stood in the same room with someone who was crazy, and it wasn't a very big room either. Now, he says he sometimes fell under the fire, and he sometimes fell into the water. He said, I brought him to you, disciples, but they could not cure him. Well, why didn't he take them to the psychiatrist? Uh, Why not the psychologist? Uh, Why would he bring them to these fellows? All they were were fishermen. They didn't have a college degree. They didn't even have a college education. They had no authority from the government to to do psychiatric work. Why in the world did they bring them to him, them, to cure him? Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you or put up with you? Uh, Bring him hither to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Now we find out the reason for his lunacy. He was devil-possessed. You don't think that's true? Devil possessed? Possessed with the devil? Yes, that's what he said. That's what Jesus said. He did not rebuke the, uh, uh, someone said uh, about uh, uh, this fellow, well, he must have had epilepsy because that sounds like the uh, symptoms of epilepsy. Uh, That's what uh, malady he must have had. He must have had this disease and Jesus healed him. It doesn't say that. It says that there was a devil in this boy that caused him to do the things that he did. Tried to destroy his life by throwing him in the water and throwing him in the fire. Uh, how could a devil do that? Uh, how could, uh, is it a, something that you can see that takes him by the body and throws him in a, off into the water or tries to throw him into the fire? Uh, uh, no, it was a evil spirit, a demon, which was inside of him trying to control him and cause his mind uh, to uh, uh, take his body and throw it into this water and throw it into this fire to try to kill him. But God preserved this boy from dying that way because Jesus was going to come along and cast the devil out of him. Oh, yes, there is devil possession. No one knows it any better than the saints of God. I have read in past years among the ministers of the Church of God the dealings they had with people who were devil possessed. And I'll tell you, make your hair stand on end. Some of the experiences, especially Brother S.O. Susak, in some of the dealings that he had with devil possessed people that uh, it was very real and it wasn't too long ago. We're talking about the 1900s when I say this. So it is real. It is not just something we read in here and that's for an archaic time. We're, We're talking about something that's still prevalent today and on the rise, by the way. I don't watch these things, but I have heard about them. Some of these rock musicians who go on these concerts and do some of the things that I have heard they have done, there could be only one explanation for the conduct of such men and such women. They have to be devil-possessed. And a spiritual disorder must have a spiritual remedy. Natural means in these cases are absolutely worthless. There is no power among psychiatrists or psychologists Much of the time, people that are devil-possessed and uncontrollable are are sent to maximum security institutions and locked up away from all other people. We're living in a real world, and it happens now as well as it did back there. The disciples could not cure him, so he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. Now that's not a real good translation when you think of unbelief. The real translation here for that word is their lack of faith. Because they were not unbelievers in the sense that they did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They were believers and disciples of Jesus and followers of Jesus. It was their lack of faith in this particular situation that uh, caused them to fail in what they were doing. He said, Then Jesus said, For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you." The mustard seed is a small, very small seed, but it, uh, its plant grows up almost to the size of a tree and it grows very quickly and it spreads very quickly up into a large tree into which birds get, can uh, uh, perch into. And that's the kind of faith that he was talking about, this growing faith, this, this um, uh Uh, Great faith, or or, uh, all faith, or some kind of faith it took beyond what these disciples had at this time. And so Jesus was trying to encourage them and us. And he says, Nothing shall be impossible unto you. Impossible. Nothing impossible. Wow, when you think of that, not possible. Nothing shall be not possible to you. We've got an open-ended promise, haven't we? Someone asked back in the Old Testament, is anything or made a statement, is anything too hard for God? And one time when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he walked away because he wouldn't pay the price, Uh, Jesus said, how hardly it will be that a rich man shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, And he said, well, it's impossible with man, but nothing is impossible with God. And Jesus said here, if you have faith like the grain of the mustard seed... You can say to the mountain, Remove, and it will, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. And then he qualifies why they could not cast him out, howbeit this kind, this kind of demon, uh, deeply entrenched in this young boy, goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. You see, that's what they didn't do. They didn't pray, they didn't fast, they didn't get in earnest about the matter, uh, to the point where their faith would take hold and cast the demon out of this boy. So Jesus had to do it. And So while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceeding sorry. Aren't you glad you don't know when you're going to go? You would live the rest of your life. Just waiting for that moment, wouldn't you? But Jesus knew when he was going to die. And I'm glad that, it, that he kept, keeps that from us. Because I don't think most of us could handle it. I don't think most of us could cope with it. Uh, someone said here recently, or I read uh, something that uh, I hadn't thought about before. But do you realize along with me tonight that human beings are the only creatures in God's creation that know they're going to die? The animals don't know. They just exist until it's done. Human beings are the only, people, only ones in God's creation that know they are going to die. Jesus knew. And they were sorry. Exceeding sorry. And when they were come into Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom do the kings of the earth take custom or tribute, of their own children or strangers? Peter saith of him, O strangers, Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free. Notwithstanding, we should offend them, go thou to the sea, and cast a hook, and take up the fish, uh, that first cometh up, and when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money that take, and give unto them for me and thee. Pay your taxes, whatever country you live in. Oh, I know the the, the money is squandered. it just absolutely squandered, but we can't do anything about it, can we? There is an organization that spent thousands of hours in the united states and got up a report and gave it to the government and said this is how if you will implement these things and they're a very prestigious organization i don't know if it's the heritage foundation or one other like it but they said you can save 315 billion dollars if you'll do this If you'll implement this, what we have told you, you can say it can be done without hindering or weakening the country. You can save $315 billion. You know what the Congress said? We don't want it. We can't hardly believe anymore what those people are saying up there in Washington, D.C. But we should pay our taxes, and we do. Let's go down to 18... And at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto thee, You, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Another place Jesus said to a very religious man, Except thou, except a man be born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. A little farther down in the same chapter, he said again to that same man, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Here he said to his disciples, after bringing this little child in the midst of them, except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Conversion and being born again mean exactly the same thing. To be converted is to turn quite around, to reverse, to turn oneself about, to change your mind about God and your relationship to Him. And not only your relationship, but your accountability to Him. You must uh, uh, become awakened by the preaching of the gospel to the truth of how you really stand before God because it is the devil's business to keep you ignorant about what you are in the sight of God. So he said, except you be converted and become like little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know, the majority of American people, church members, believe, and I'm sure it's true in the rest of the Protestant evangelical world, wherever people are that have been uh, preached some of the gospel to them and have a little knowledge of God and and a saving grace of God, uh, they are uh, uh, persuaded somehow or another that they are going to heaven. And that by the particular works or or, uh, liturgy they uh, accept, or or works that they do, that's going to get them to heaven. The majority of the American people who, who go to church believe that they are on their way to heaven. But when you ask them, have they been born again? Have they been converted? Generally, the answer is, no, I haven't. Well, what did Jesus say about that? He said, if you're not born again, you're not going there. He said, if you're not converted, you're not going there. He told the Jews one time, if you die in your sins, you cannot come where I am. You know, it's strange to me in 34 years of telling people what Jesus said uh, over and over again, witnessing to private people or in groups, or uh, situations. Uh, you tell them what Jesus said about the matter and they look at you as if it doesn't mean anything what he said. I'm on my way to heaven because thus and so and thus and so. But they're not on their way to heaven because of what Jesus said or what Jesus required of them. What Jesus has to say doesn't mean a whole lot to most people, I have found out, who especially have been brought up in some particular church organization in which uh, this doesn't really matter to them. Uh, it's just a matter of being infant, uh, baptized when you're an infant or, or saying uh, some kind of uh, acceptance, uh, a intellectual acceptance, of the fact that Jesus lived, a a, a historical Christ, uh, something to that effect, or a little catechism, or a little confirmation, or or a little raise your right hand and speak after me sort of religion, then they think that because they've done that, that heaven is a guaranteed place. Well, heaven is not a guaranteed place because Jesus said, except you're born again, you can forget about going there. Why doesn't the preachers of the gospel or the churches of the land say this to these people? Confront their people with this. You know why they don't do it? Because they're getting hired and they're getting paid and they're not about to take the food out of their own mouth. And because of this, because they are hirelings, they are not about to tell their people the way I'm telling you tonight what Jesus has to say. But I'm not a hireling. And I'm not committed. Nobody's paying my salary and nobody has hired me and nobody's going to fire me. So I'm as free as I can be to tell you what Jesus said. He said, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. My margin says spiritual surgery. Now, Jesus... This isn't literal. Jesus doesn't say, if if your hand is, is going to uh, be a, uh, a way in which you commit sin, well, then just cut your hand off and you won't commit sin. Sin is not uh, uh, like that. Sin is in the soul and the body just carries it out. So he's talking about anything that would hinder you from getting saved. And staying saved, get rid of it to the extent of even uh, the absolute uh, nth degree of cutting one's hand off or, or uh, uh, taking one's eye out. Uh, it's better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than to having two eyes, to be cast into hell fire. And this hell here is the lake of fire. It's the last place that all sinners are going to go if they die in their sins. It is the final place of torment for all lost people, that have ever lived. This is the hell that's mentioned here. Take heed, therefore, you to despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father, which is in heaven. We've got to be converted before we can ever begin to live. We've got to be born again before we can ever enter into heaven. And being born again is just the start. Uh the, the big thing is, after one is born again, as difficult it is for people to become born again in our day and age, uh, after that he says, he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. But along the way, there are exceeding great and precious promises that God has given to all people who are saved, all the redeemed, all of the church of God, not only here, but in every country on the face of the earth, wherever there are redeemed people, wherever there are born-again people, wherever there are saved people walking in the light of this gospel, there are exceeding great and precious promises. Uh, Someone took the trouble to find out there are some 3,000 promises in the Bible, and Every last one of them are for people that are saved and on their way to heaven. But along with all the journey from from, uh, the time you are saved to the time that you die, Jesus said, he that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. Why? Because it is possible to start out right and go right for a while and then fall by the wayside and be lost at the end. So therefore, the warnings throughout the whole New Testament are, watch... Pray, labor, continue in whatever God tells you to do. Do it so that you might make heaven your eternal home because we're on probation all the way down to the end of our life. He says, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Saved? It means to deliver. Deliver. Salvation, the word salvation means deliverance. Doesn't mean joining a church or being a good Samaritan or doing to others as you would have them do unto you. It doesn't mean that. It means to be delivered from your sins. That's what salvation means, deliverance. That's the clearest definition of salvation that the Bible teaches. It's from the Greek word, which means deliverance. Uh, It means to heal or heal the soul uh, or to make whole or make make a complete person out of you or to protect and preserve. When one is saved, one uh, becomes a whole person. In fact, the word perfect in the New Testament, more times than not, means whole or complete. A complete person. You're not a complete person until you're saved because you're outside the realm and the will of God. You're outside of the protection of God. You're living on dangerous ground. You're living uh, in a place where it is possible that you could die that way and be lost forever spending eternity with all of the damned throughout the whole ages of time and those that have yet to die. And when you think of it most of the people that you and I know, your relatives and the people you rub shoulders with and elbows with and the people that you work with and on and on I could go most of the people that you and I know tonight are lost they are not ready to meet God the majority of the people in this country are lost and Jesus said the son of man has come to save that which was lost why are they lost because they're sinners every sinner is lost and in need of salvation from that sin That's what salvation is also. It is salvation from sin. That's what makes a person lost is the fact that they're a sinner. But then someone says, well, isn't everybody a sinner? No, not everybody's a sinner. A person is a sinner until they get saved. And then they are saved from their sins. That's what salvation is all about. I mean, it's it's so simple that it goes over the head of most people. It, it, there is uh, such a simplicity about this uh, salvation that God has provided for the human race uh, that the intellectual community says, Oh, it can't be that simple. It's got to be something more difficult. I've got to do something to to get this. I've got to work at this. I've got to work at that. Oh, it must be more complicated than that. It is not more complicated than that. If it was more complicated than that, the simpleton or, or, the, or the person without too much comprehension or a person whose mind is not very much improved would not God be able to comprehend it and miss it. So God got it down to the simplest terms. Even with the fact that a little child can understand, uh, uh, understand the pains of their conscience. And can understand the guilt that they have for what the things that they've done against God. And they can come down to an altar of prayer. And they can ask God to forgive them. A 8, 10, 12 year old child can get just as saved as anybody can. Because they know they're lost. And Jesus came to save that which was lost. How think you if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray doth he not leave the ninety and nine and goeth into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray and if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went astray even so it is not the will of your father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish you and I saints need to realize tonight that the angels in heaven are interested and you and I going out and witnessing to people and getting them to sit down for a while and listen to the gospel and getting them to get saved then the angels of God rejoice over that fact. If we're just going to sit around and do nothing and come together three times a week and go about our business and say that's that I've done my duty then you're missing what we're talking about here tonight. Because it is our duty and, and it should be our burden and concern because we have the knowledge. We have the responsibility and accountability ability. We have what the world needs. We have a deliverance from sin. We have a salvation presented out to us in the Bible for this lost and dying world around us. And it's up to us to go out and try. Even though we're not going to win very many in these last days, we still need to go out and try. Do everything that we can. Be conscious of the lost around us and tell them that there is a Savior because most of them don't know it. Most of them don't know the peril they're under. Most of them don't know the situation they're, they're confronted with and the realization that they're, uh, they're just one or three heartbeats away from hell. Why don't we get this feeling? Why don't we get this burden? Why don't we get this concern? Why do we just keep coming by ourselves and not try to do anything about getting somebody? Surely some of you ought to be able to somehow or another get somebody to come and listen or if they won't come, tell them why you're out there. This business of just coming and hanging our heads and sitting down and then going and sitting down and going about our business is, you know what's going to happen? You're going to wake up one day and find out you don't even have the salvation anymore. It is not the will of the Father which is in heaven, that anyone should perish in their sins. Why? Because He's made a way. He's provided a Savior. And Jesus is the universal Savior. He's the Savior for the Muslim. He's the Savior for the Hindu. He's the Savior for the black man in Africa. He's the Savior for the uh, the white man in, in uh, northern Europe. He's the Savior for the yellow man in China. He's the Savior for the Russians, for the Cubans, for uh, the... Uh, uh, People of all races and all cultures, because the Bible judges all cultures and all races. This is not just a white man's Bible or a white man's religion. That's a lot of fallacy that the black people sometimes have been telling their their people or the Chinese or whatever. This is a universal salvation. Jesus is a universal savior. He has. It is not the will of his father and our father that anyone should be lost. Therefore, he has made a universal plan to save the whole human race. To save every person that will believe. Otherwise, what good would it be to send out these 39,000 people? What are we sending them out for? The Islamic world says, you're nothing but Christian dogs. Uh, The Hindu says, I've got my own God, don't bother me. Uh, the, The man out there in the islands of the sea bowing down before some idol. Or the man in the Roman Catholic system bowing down before his idol says, don't bother me with that. I've got my own religion. Well... We need to bother them. We need to awaken them. Because as I said before, it is the devil's business to keep you asleep. It is the devil's business to keep you from doing what you have to do in order to be saved. It's not God's will that anybody should die and be lost. And that's why we preach the way we do. That's why we don't hold anything back. That's why we tell it the way we do. and endeavor to enlighten you and awaken you to to the realization that uh, someday you're going to stand before a holy God. And if you're not ready to meet him in peace, you're going to stand there in abject terror. How do we know? Because he is absolutely holy. And his law is absolutely holy and demands absolute obedience. And the only people that can do that are those that are saved. And he says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. He gets into the realm of, uh, of interpersonal relationship here and shows us that we have to have a forgiving spirit. I haven't experienced some of the things that some people have that they would refuse to forgive. I'm kind of glad I haven't because I think it would be a pretty tough thing for me if someone hurt someone that I love deeply, hurt them badly some way or another. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I couldn't do what he's talking about here. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother, but if he will not hear thee, take... Then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. Now this is church business he's talking about here. It isn't the world. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The things that we say... The gospel that we preach. If we tell you the truth. And you neglect it. Or you reject it. Then you are bound. By what you have heard. And what we preach. You can be loosed. From your sins. You see we have this great responsibility. And accountability to God. To tell you the truth, and then hope that you will respond to it. He said again I say unto you that it is if two or of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done of them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. See, God hasn't left us alone. God hasn't left us to our own desires. He hasn't left us to a priesthood religion. He hasn't left us to run off to a priest or to a minister and say, what do I have to do, Father? Or tell me what I must do uh, uh, about this matter and that matter and the other matter. He hasn't left us alone. Uh, you know, he, he sent the Holy Spirit. That's what he said he would do when he went back to heaven. And he said, uh, he will guide you into all truth. Uh, he will be your protector. He'll send the angels to encompass around about you. He'll watch over you all the days of your life. And and He'll care for you and look out for you and provide all the things that you need in your life. Uh, If you'll trust Him. That's all God really wants us to do. He wants us to trust His Word, which is Him. Trust Him and trust His Word. And then He will pour out His blessings upon us. Uh, He will uh, grant unto us the answers to the exceeding great and precious promises that He's given us. Uh, he will provide... Uh Employment for us uh, somehow or some way. I, God has done that for me down through the years, in spite of the fact that on several occasions I was fired from jobs because I was witnessing to people and the people there who owned the places were offended and booted me out the door. But God always had something better for me. God has provided protection from injury and, and uh, sickness and, and uh, debilitating I- uh, illnesses down through the years. And then when we did get sick, God has given us a promise of healing for the body, healing for the for the afflictions and uh, diseases or all of those things not only that but God has kept a lot of maladies away from us from my family and myself and from you since you have uh, experienced salvation as well And you have the protecting hand of Almighty God who said that in the name of Jesus, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. He says, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. There's nobody or no government or no no person in the face of the earth that can give you that kind of a promise and keep it. But he has done so. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say, not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And my margin says, uh, just unlimited forgiveness. How can you do that? It is natural for human beings to want to get revenge, to get even. <clears throat> Nobody's going to do that to me and get away with it. That spirit, that's not true in the church. Peter thought, how often do I have to keep on forgiving this person for doing the same thing over again to me? And so Jesus told him a parable. Told him an illustration to get the point across. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king which had took account of his servants. And we begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. But for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and his children and all they had in payment had to be made. That's what they did back there, sold your whole family. The servant therefore fell down and worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of the servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him his debt. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, which owed him a hundred pence, and he laid hands on him, took him by the throat, saying, Pay me that thou owest. His fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. And he would not. But went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. He didn't do the same thing that was done to him. That's the way the world is, you know that? They want, but they don't want to give. I knew a fellow I worked with, and he was like that. I worked with him for several years. He was my boss for a while. He said, I'm a member of the W.I.I.F.M. Society. I said, I never heard of that. What's that? He said, what's in it for me? That was it. What's in it for me? This is the philosophy of the world. What's in it for me? And he acted like that, and he lived like that. This fellow did not forgive the servant who owed him, but he wanted forgiveness, and he got it. But you know, the end wasn't o- it wasn't over with yet. So when his fellow servants s- Fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry and came and told unto their Lord all that was done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said unto him, Oh, thou wicked servant, I forgave thee all thy debt because thou desiredst me. Shouldst not thou also have compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on thee? See, the illustration fits what Peter was asking. Peter wanted to know how many times he should be forgive. So Jesus, in this illustration, told him how it should be. If you were forgiven, You should be able to forgive. And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you. If you you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. I'll tell you, I don't know. I haven't dealt with people too many people like this. But I, I know that there are people in this world who will not forgive who refuse to forgive what others have done. But you know, if you're going to make heaven your home, and you're ever going to get saved, you're going to have to forgive what others have done to you. As hard as that may be. Then I want to, for a few verses in chapter 19, talk a little bit about something that is so prevalent today. I wasn't going to include it, but I think I will. For Jesus dealt with the matter. And it's almost like he wrote it today in today's news. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. Jesus is the great physician. He is the great healer. We have a song in our book that says he is just the same today. He is just the same today as he walked the shores of Galilee. It's the same Jesus we're talking about tonight that we're reading about in the book. We believe in the same Jesus that he still has the same power today as he did when he walked on earth. He healed people there. He heals people today. I know there's a great deal of controversy over this matter, but I know by personal experience that it's true. He has been my only physician for 34 years. I have known no doctors or no medicines. I have known no operations I've had none of these things, I've been sick. I was, think, deathly sick one time when I was traveling on the road, I told you about that before, and God healed me that, that night before I was done in the morning, before I was dead in the morning. Because I trusted him all the way from the beginning of my saved experience, it was not difficult for me to trust him all the way for difficult uh, sickness that night. I must have had food poisoning so bad that I I ached and every my eyeballs ached. My ears ached. My big toes ached. I ached all over. I was cold one moment and sweating the next. Uh, My back hurt. My legs hurt. I was so sick I couldn't get one comfortable place laying in that bed. I watched the cars go by all night long on that freeway in that motel. Uh, I watched them thickly uh, down in Denver... Denver, Colorado, I watched him running by there and I watched him thin out and then I watched him get uh, 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 thick again uh, all through the night, calling on God and asking him to heal me and by the time the morning came I felt so much better that I could get in the car and drive on back home. My wife and Tim know how sick I was that night, so I know this is true, I'm not talking from just ideology. He healed them. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him. See, these people were not coming to learn. These people were not coming to inquire. They were not coming to seek. They were coming to find fault. They were coming to tempt him. These are religious, very religious people. But the religion was all they had. They came, they were religious leaders, and they they were tempting him, saying, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? We get into the realm of divorce. We have now, in our state, I believe, no-fault divorce. When I was young, one out of four marriages ended in divorce. Now there are one out of two that end in divorce. It is an absolute plague upon this country i stood in the basement of the of the uh, courthouse here one day talking with a fella and and i couldn't even carry on the conversation too well because i was right next to the divorce court and there were a number of lawyers and and uh, individual women and men in other places talking and crying and, and uh, all distraught over the fact of divorce and uh, I get around a lot uh, in society in our in our city, and I observe a lot and I read a great deal and I see all of the tragedies that are occurring in divorce where it leaves uh, it is considered the second worst thing that can happen the most the second most traumatic thing that can happen to a person is that their marriage and their home is broken up. There are so many psychological uh, uh, Things that happen to a person when their marriage dissolves. uh, Guilt over failure to keep the thing together. Or uh, uh, anger because of what the other person has done. And on and on and on it goes. What does God have to say about this matter? Does he have any? Is God silent about the whole thing? Are we just going to go on and let the whole thing fall apart? Let families become uh, torn apart and deteriorated? No. The Bible has an answer to this thing. There is Jesus dealt with it back there as he deals with it now. And this is what we're going to talk about for a few moments. They said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother. Now this is God talking now, and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. You see, in the sight of God, when a person is married, they become as one. And God considers them, and the Jews considered them, and they were correct in the matter, as one soul. One flesh, it says. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And I want to inform you, if you don't know, that, uh, know it tonight, there is no nation on the face of the earth, ours included, that have any right at all to make divorce laws. They are out of God's will. They are out of God's book. There is no right for any legislator to make any law that will divorce people. They have no right. In the sight of God. And they will pay these legislators. And all these countries that do these things. What God has joined together. Let no man put asunder. He's not talking just about saints joined together. He's talking about everyone and anyone that gets married. So they said unto him. Why did Moses then give uh, uh, command to give a writing of divorcement to put her away? Now they thought they had him there. He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. God never planned that divorce should ever happen. God's plan was for one man, for one woman, for their entire lifetime. And the only thing that dissolves that marriage is death of one or the other. That's God's plan. There is no dissolving of marriage. Jesus did away with divorce. There's no such thing as divorce in the eyes of Almighty God. And we need to know this tonight. In spite of the fact that it is done, uh, one out of two marriages go to the divorce courts and the tragedy that goes along with it is just continuous in the lives of those people that are confronted with it. From the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, in the case of a man, be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. I'm going to deal with that one at the end, but some people think, well, divorce, Jesus allows divorce if one of the mates are unfaithful. That's not so in the Jewish church and Jesus dealt with the Jews because Matthew's gospel was mainly to the Jewish people if a person was to be united with another uh, in the Jewish uh, religion and in the Jewish society they had one year's betrothal which is the same as our uh, uh, engagement can't remember that word and they were engaged for this whole year before they had the marriage ceremony. And that engagement was just as binding as marriage itself. And should one of the two partners, and in this case they talked about, uh, uh, well, either one. It would, be, it would be either one, although the women were not thought of uh, uh, as much as the men back here. If, for example, that girl went out and and, uh, lay with another man during that year's time, that marriage would be null and void as far as that man was concerned. That betrothal would have been broken and that was the reason that he said that. For you see, it is not a married person uh, that can commit fornication, it is a single person. The married person's sin is adultery. The single person's sin is fornication. And so therefore, Jesus dealt with the Jewish people and dealt with their uh, culture and their religious views when he said, except it be for fornication. How do we know that? Because over in Mark, in Mark uh, uh, which was the gospel to the Gentiles, in Mark 10 and 11, he said, And Jesus speaking about the same matter. And he saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So therefore, when people, when the the laws of the land allow divorce and people go out and marry again, divorce is not the sin. Although Jesus did away with it, divorce is not the sin. The sin is going out and marrying someone else while your mate is still living. That is the sin. And you know something tonight? Most ministers wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. I've talked to a lot of them. And they've got people in their congregations that are in that very condition. And they're not about to deal with it at all. They say nothing about it. They try to justify the fact that people are out there marrying someone else after they have divorced while they have a living mate. What did Jesus say about it? They're adulterers and adulteresses. They live in that state continually. And a lot of these people in these churches are professing to be born again. They're professing to be saved. They're professing to be Christians on their way to heaven while They're living in adultery with a second mate. Try to take the Bible and twist it around and say, well, her mate... Committed adultery or fornication, and/or she committed fornication, therefore she's justified in the sight of God to go out and marry someone else. And you know, something what I found out the devil wants these second marriages to go so sweetly and so smoothly. Oh, if he can get people to say, Oh, that first marriage, I was 16 years old, and he got me pregnant, and we never did have it good, and we never loved each other, and it was a mess all the way from the beginning. But I found this wonderful man. Oh, we had. Have such a sweet relationship we're going along so fine we've been married 10 years now we've got children and it's so sweet that's exactly what the devil wants it to be he'd like it to go all the way down to the end because if he can do that he'll have them forever let that second marriage be sweet but in the sight of God they are adulterers and adulteresses and why won't these ministers deal with it because they're entering into this sin well I'm one That's going to deal with it and have dealt with it. And Jesus was so plain about this matter, there's no appeal to it. This is absolutely what he said. And I'm only telling you what he said. I don't have any opinion in the matter. I don't have any doctrine. I don't have anything new to to state about the matter. This is exactly what Jesus said about it. And we've got a whole society full of this situation. And what are we going to do about it? We're going to deal with it just like Jesus did. He told them what they were doing. And the disciples said, well, if that's the way it is, there's no sense in being married. Now, that was a stupid statement. It only applies to those who are in that situation. If a person is going to get married and that marriage is going to last their whole life, there's no problem with that. So why would they say it's not good for a man to get married then if that's the way it's going to be? Well, it isn't going to be that way if you're going to marry for life. Does the other creation, the animal creation, have more sense than human beings? Did you know geese mate for life? Wolves mate for life? Other animals and birds in the the animal kingdom, they mate for life. You mean they got more sense than human beings? It must be. But see, the only difference between them and human beings, human beings have a soul. Human beings are subject to sin and degradation and subject to an enmity in the heart against Almighty God. Oh, it's wonderful to know the truth, isn't it? It's even more blessed to be able to accept it, because I don't mind telling you it, believe me. I'm glad that you're here so that you can hear it tonight. Let's sing a song while we close. He is just the same today. I quoted that song. I think it's somebody who had to tell me where it is. Have you ever heard of Jesus for what? 450? Number 450 in the regular hymnal. How he came from heaven to earth with a name of mighty virtue, though by very humble birth. When the world was held in bondage under Satan's dismal sway, Jesus healed their dread diseases, and he's just the same today. Let's stand together as we sing.